What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. All right, we're scrapping the cute stuff and cutting straight to the chase. I'm Dessa. This is Deeply Human. Today, we're talking about drugs. And we're already like five and a half seconds in. Let's go. Hit it. James, can we speed it up a little? I've just, I've just got like an insane amount of stuff to get to in this episode. Great. Thank you. Hey, come on, man. Don't speed me. You know, dude, that always makes me dizzy, and you know it. Okay. I work as a touring musician, where it's not considered unprofessional to drink on the job. In fact, taking a slug of whiskey on stage often elicits a round of applause. This business is full of fascinating, brilliant weirdos, and intoxicants are easy to get and sometimes hard to avoid. Alexis Stevenson, an author friend of mine, once told me, I'm not a writer, I just drink a lot about it, which I immediately cribbed for a song lyric. Substance use and abuse is sort of baked into the culture, and that's true at the indie level and for the A-listers. To quote the late, great Robin Williams, cocaine is God's way of saying that you are making too much money. Even being so surrounded by it, there is still something that's sort of paradoxical about drugs to me. Not just the many hazards of abuse, but the very idea of drugs. Isn't every organism supposed to be out here fighting for survival? Wouldn't getting messed up slow our reflexes and make us worse at hunting or escaping whoever is hunting us? Why would we choose to regularly impair ourselves? And even if you don't drink or smoke, odds are you've probably had the occasional cup of coffee or tea. Caffeine is the most commonly used psychoactive drug in the world. So, the question of the day, why do we use intoxicants? My name is Marika Janiak. I am a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Salford near Manchester, and I study primates and how they have adapted to eating different foods. Primates includes us, right? Yes, that's right. Okay. We are primates. It turns out that people primates have a particular genetic advantage when it comes to digesting alcohol, a.k.a. ethanol. Marika says we may have first developed a special interest for alcohol when we transitioned from being tree-dwelling creatures to a more terrestrial lifestyle. When we started living on the ground, we were more likely to come across fallen fruit. When fruit becomes overripe and has a lot of sugar in it, what tends to happen is that yeasts get in there and yeast will start to eat the sugars, and the end product of that is ethanol, a substance that smells really strongly, right? So it could be almost like an advertisement. It's like you know, this, this odor plume. It's like, hey, there's sugar here. Eat me. And we have a particular genetic advantage that allows us to process that ethanol, meaning we can potentially eat more energy-rich fruit. There is this mutation that humans have. And what's interesting about this mutation is that it makes our ethanol metabolism really, really efficient, like 40 times more efficient. Early hominids may have been attracted to boozy stuff because it was a reliable source of energy. 
Genetic evidence implies this mutation may have surfaced 10 million years ago, though it could be much longer, too. And it's not only primates who are interested in this fruity, boozy business. The big story, the most famous story, is that elephants go for these fermented marula fruits. And it's a story that's so widespread, like it's brought up in these brochures for safaris. There's a famous liqueur that's made out of marula fruits. It's called amarula. Amarula is a lot like Bailey's. I have toured South Africa, I have had it over ice, and it is awesome. I have also heard the stories of elephants totally lit up on fermented marula fruit, stumbling around and making a mess of themselves like a 30-ton bachelor party with tusks. What humans want to see is that elephants want to you know, become intoxicated. They want to get not the sugar, but they want to get the side effects. And it's like this intentionality aspect. It's really, really difficult. But how do you prove that an animal is trying to get faded and not just get food? So there's one study with um, something called an ii. It's a it's a type of lemur from Madagascar. They're they're so cool looking. Aren't they really cute? Um, that well, it's in the eye of the beholder. I think I think they're Whoa. cute. Some people don't agree. Um, Wait, hold up. Google Google search. Hold up. Hold yes. They have oh. these, <laughs> they have very large ears oh, and uh, oh, I don't feel good about it now. Rat-like faces. Oh, <laughs> don't like that. But they have great tails. They have these great bushy tails. And they have this amazing middle finger that's all long and spindly that they use to tap on tree trunks with to find hollow parts. And then when they found a hollow part, they gouge it. And usually there's some kind of big bug or grub in there that they pull out with their spindly finger and then eat. But... They don't just eat bugs, they also eat a lot of nectar. And the nectar that they consume, you can tell there's ethanol in it just from smelling it. When researchers gave eyes the choice between an alcoholic mixture and just plain water, they drank twice as much of the booze. And in a study on elephants and alcohol, researchers allowed them to drink from a boozy trough, then took detailed notes on their behavior. The things that they wrote down were like swaying and increased vocalizations and increased aggression, which it's like, are you looking for those things because that's what humans do? Or, you know, is that really how the intoxication manifests? Wild animals only have access to alcohol when they come across naturally fermenting sugars, or I guess research teams who are willing to fill up a trough with booze. But when did people start making alcohol on purpose? So, I mean, this is when we get into archaeological evidence, which I think is amazing. It's just so cool. Like, you can get residues from things that are thousands of years old and and find evidence that, you know, these were used to ferment beverages. So, yeah, it goes back like about 10,000 years that we, we have evidence of humans intentionally fermenting foods and beverages. Fermentation practices might go back even further, but that's hard to prove. Like, if a pot was made of wood, it might not survive millennia to be discovered. Okay, let's transition now from prehistory to the bleeding edge of scientific investigation. My name is David Nutt. I'm a a psychiatrist. I'm a psychopharmacologist. So I study the effects of drugs on the nervous system and the psychological consequences of those. 
David is an internationally recognized veteran in his field. He spent 10 years advising the British government on how to create a rational approach to drugs and how to minimize their harms. And in the UK, he's also known for controversy. He was dismissed from his position after arguing that alcohol was more harmful than a host of other drugs. And to illustrate the relative dangers of taking the drug ecstasy, he noted that it was no more dangerous than horseback riding. I'd probably given more different classes of drugs to human beings than possibly anyone ever in the history of the world. I mean, there's almost no class of drug that I haven't studied in humans. And humans use a bunch of drugs. I mean, almost no human doesn't take any drugs again. Tea, coffee, alcohol, tobacco. 99% of the world's population use an intoxicant or a brain-changing drug for some purpose, generally for benefit. Think, for example, of the reason you might order a drink on a first date. Alcohol makes you sociable and, uh, and it makes you convivial and relaxed in company enough to take away the natural social anxiety we all have when we're meeting strangers or going to parties. Stress is part of, of a human, an animal experience. But then there's a second thing, which is novelty. I mean, the human brain is a, is a novelty-seeking organ. You know, humans fascinated by new things, which is why we are so successful in the world, because we've discovered new things and we've remembered them and we've adapted them and reinforced them. There's something fundamentally appealing in feeling our consciousness temporarily transformed into something less familiar than our workday minds. Alcohol has been used in military purposes. People drink before they fight because the alcohol dampens down the fear response. The reason alcohol is so popular, it's been so popular for so many thousands of years, is, is it's a really good drug. It gets in fast, it gets in the brain fast. You know, it's reliable in terms of what you get. The effect is dose-related. My very first taste of alcohol was probably a sip of a relative's Manhattan cocktail. I was maybe eight. It was gross, and I drank it anyway as a demonstration of my worldliness. Not too long afterwards, I would have sipped wine from a heavy metal goblet held by a priest at Catholic Mass. Communal drinking is often a rite of passage, socially and sometimes religiously. And pretty soon, I was a sneaky teenager trying to weasel my way into the liquor cabinet at my friend Katie's dad's house. We poured a little bit from every bottle to create a seriously unfortunate slurry that included, among other things, Midori whiskey and Bailey's Irish cream. So how does alcohol actually work? What is it doing to us? David Nutt explains that it affects several pathways in the brain, and it mimics a particular neurotransmitter called GABA. And in humans and all other primate, well, in fact, pretty much all vertebrates, GABA calms the brain. Another neurotransmitter called glutamate has the opposite effect. It revs you up. And both substances are always at play in your brain. And it's almost like your, your brain is walking a tightrope. Too much glutamate and you become hyperexcited and then you end up getting anxious or having a seizure. And uh, so GABA protects you against that. But too much GABA, you fall asleep and then you get eaten by a tiger. So you've got to get the balance right. When people drink, it's like they're putting a thumb on the scale, suppressing anxiety by blunt chemical force. But of course, there are diminishing returns. To share a little poem from the writer and total boss, Dorothy Parker, I like to have a martini, two at the very most. 
After three, I'm under the table. After four, I'm under my host. Alcohol impairs judgment and cognition, and it can have life-destroying chronic consequences, disease and addiction among them. To quote F. Scott Fitzgerald, first you take a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes you. Our psychopharmacologist, David Nutt, has been in the field of substance abuse for almost 40 years. I'll give you an example of a recent patient of mine. And his life was to get up in the morning and uh, he'd get a bus up the road to the supermarket. He'd buy two litres of strong cider, which is about two weeks' worth of alcohol. And he'd just sit there all day and drink that. And he was destroying himself. And that's really quite common, people drinking alone and not, and, or they're using alcohol then as an anesthetic to deaden the pain of their lives rather than getting any benefit from it. People suffering from addiction use intoxicants because it feels like they have to. Some people cite the dangers of booze in an argument for abstinence, but David is working on inventing a new drug, an alternative to alcohol. Alcohol works on multiple neurotransmitter systems. It's also a poison, you know, it damages your liver and your heart and your blood vessels, etc. Alcohol's like playing a piano with boxing gloves on. David has a lab team working to design a chemical substance that can imitate the GABA effect of alcohol without wreaking as much havoc on the rest of the system, like a proper pianist that plays the song and then goes home. It's not done yet, but in the meantime, he's created and bottled a prototype that can be concocted from herbs already on the market as foodstuffs. I met him in a corner bar in West London to try some. This is a botanical spirit that uh, is called Sentia, and it's made of herbs and a combination that will give you an effect like a low dose of alcohol, like maybe a glass of wine, without having anything like as much impact on the rest of your body. Cheers. Cheers. The very first thing you notice about Sentia is the color. It's a burgundy that very much appealed to the vestigial goth teenager in me. And it's a water-based drink, but to create some of that, like, alcohol heat on the exhale, it has a little bit of pepper in it. It's Christmassy, you know, has that sort of um, clovey mm, yes. aspect to it. Um, yes, it and then in a few moments, I hope you'll feel that uh, it's beginning to have the other effects of alcohol, not just the mouth effects, but also the brain effects. I admit that I didn't really feel a buzz after drinking Sentia. I didn't go in very hard, though, because I was afraid to muck up my interview with this very accomplished science guy. David hopes that when his new compound hits the market, it might shake up our whole drinking culture, which is a tall order, because that well runs really deep. We just so happen to have a cultural historian at this little mixer to tell us all about it. Angela McShane researches the history of intoxicants, and she has some insight on why we use them and how they fit into our culture at large. She recently curated an exhibit on drinking vessels at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Fantastic to welcome you here at the v and uh, in London. The v and if you haven't had a chance to visit, feels palatial. Marble staircases, super high ceilings, and display cases that are the cleanest glass I have ever seen. And I know glass is clear, but this was like clearer than the air around it. It is just, it's just really so clean. Angela's display features rows of drinking vessels, from heavy metal chalices to delicate Venetian glass. The idea of the drink display, which is here, 
was much more about what are the concepts behind drink in particular, how did it kind of like sit within society, why did people feel the need to drink, why did they often feel the need to drink too much. For tracts of our history, drinking was not an off-hours indulgence. It was a prereq for civic engagement. One of the things about the putting this story of objects together was to indicate that drink was at the heart of every part of the state. If you were going to demonstrate your loyalty to your lord, whether that's an empress or whether that's your landlord, the chances are you're going to need to have a drink with them to prove that. If you're going to go to church, then you're going to drink wine. There's also a long history of competitive social drinking. Like, way before beer pong, people were egging each other on and ribbing one another and real invested in making sure everyone was keeping pace with one another. There's a phrase called taking somebody down a peg or two. It's actually a peg, peg tankards. I didn't know the word tankard before kicking it with Angela at the museum. So, if it's a new term to you, imagine like, um like a heavy beer mug, but made out of metal and with a hinged lid on top. When you open it, what you can see inside is little pegs, like little pins in the tankard down where the uh, handle is. And these mark off different measures of drink. And that's because all of these objects are intended for sharing. And the idea is that you measure off one peg or two pegs, and you've agreed with the people that are drinking with you how many pegs you're going to drink. And often it can turn into a competition, of course, because they'll say, let's see you drink three pegs in one go. Let's see you drink... Right, so, so then it becomes a, a game. And so to take somebody down a peg or two is literally to take them down the pegs in the tankard. This emphasis on drinking together and ensuring that everyone drinks their share goes back thousands of years. The phrase in vino veritas is often credited to Pliny the Elder, a Roman statesman, and is quoted by Plato in his text Symposium. You may have heard it translated to mean something like, in wine there is truth, but... What it means is, when you read it within the context of his book, the Symposium, that because people will say things they wouldn't have said if they weren't drunk, everybody has to be drunk together, and what happens in the room stays in the room. Obviously, many people choose not to drink for personal reasons, health concerns, or to abide by the mandates of their faith. Alcohol, for example, is forbidden in Islam. Okay, so in present-day Iran, what is, the, what is the legal position on intoxicants? Iran is quite easy. Everything is illegal. Even beyond intoxication, you know, your sexual relationship before marriage are illegal. So every, everything you can think about that is, you know, you know even fairly cool is, is illegal. So I'm Mazi Argyabi, Mazi for friends and enemies. I am an academic at the University of Exeter, and I've been working on things related to how people intoxicate themselves and why they do so in, uh, in the Middle East in particular. Mazi grew up in Iran, then moved to Italy, but has returned to Iran for research trips. He stresses that the laws on the books aren't the laws on the boulevard. Total prohibition is not the reality of life in Iran. Life under the law is is far more ambiguous and ambivalent. Because everything is prohibited, in a way, everything is also allowed. So people really kind of do all sorts of stuff. I mean, I've done things that I wouldn't do elsewhere 
it's easier to order, you know, a little bag of meth or any other drug in Tehran than to order pizza. And pizza is pretty easy to order. The total ban on drugs and the serious consequences for getting caught change the social aspect of consuming drugs. Drinkers, for example, can't simply lounge and linger in a bar. And they're more likely to drink spirits than beer or wine because more potent drinks are easier to transport and sell for profit. The first 20 minutes of a drinking session are very different from whatever else you've seen elsewhere. So there is a person who is in charge of pouring whatever alcoholic drink is available. They call him Sagi, or, you know, men or women could be. Sagi is also the name for dealer, by the way. And he pours the drink for everyone, making sure that everyone drinks. And people tend to drink in a go, not sipping, you know, Russian way. By 20 minutes, everyone's drunk, usually. Prohibition laws are so commonly broken by so many people that it would be outlandish for authorities to even try to penalize everyone who did so. The law enforcement do what they do basically everywhere. They pick and choose when they need to intervene. But Mazi says they often do so with an ulterior motive. In Iran and around the world, drug violations provide the state with a pretext to intervene in the lives of people who've been flagged as risky or problematic for other reasons. Consider, for example, the 17th century Ottoman crackdown on coffee houses. Coffee was an exotic substance when it arrived, you know, in the Ottoman Empire. A whole culture of coffee drinking uh, started around this new substance, you know. And because there were also these places, the coffee houses, where people would meet and, you know, discuss. There were places which were seen as, you know, definitely not conventional, but also potentially dangerous in political terms. According to Mazi and many of his colleagues, you know, in academia, you would struggle to find anyone who supports prohibition. Because, you know, if you study drugs and addiction, there is no way you can say that the current regime of drug prohibition works. Your voice changes when you talk about prohibition. Like, you just sound hella bored. Is it just because it's just an abject failure and there's nothing interesting to say about it? Yeah, and so <laughs> it's funny that you say so. Prohibition has been a total failure in Iran as elsewhere, you know, equally. As a really little kid, I remember seeing a public service announcement on TV, a warning about the grave dangers of marijuana, which was prohibited then across the U.S. I ran from the living room television set to the kitchen and then back again and found my fears confirmed. The glass object on the kitchen shelf was, in fact, a bong, which meant that one, or maybe both, of my parents was a drug user. I ended up in tears on my dad's lap. He admitted the bong was his and tried to soothe me with a hug and some patient words. He asked if I thought of him differently, and I told him, uh, yes. According to the after-school TV programming, he was a moral hazard and a total deviant. But being my dad... He also made the rules about bedtime and dinner menus, so I didn't really have a leg to stand on. Prohibition might not be too effective, but it does say something about the intensity of our motivation to use intoxicants. 
People around the world are willing to risk serious consequences to get drunk or high. Even if how we use them looks different, it seems like we've got a really strong universal why. And those drives are varied. When you live in Iran, a lot of people have this feeling that they are basically living in isolation from everything. For everything that is happening in the world and that's interesting, you know, they feel that they're losing out. And so drugs, in a way, project you in a dimension which is still yours, you know, it's the Iranian dimension of your everyday life, but you're connected. Like the people are being high in California, you're being high in Tehran. It's a mimicking act. We use drugs to feel connected to each other, from communion cup to keg stand. We all do use drugs. We do because fundamentally we try to feel better in the world. Some of them are legal, some of them are illegal, some of them are prescribed by, you know, our pharmacists, and some, you know, that may be prescribed by our dealers. We use intoxicants to blunt our anxieties, to demonstrate our allegiances. We use them as part of our ceremonies and to compete and connect with one another. And of course, the particular intoxicants we choose can also send messages about how we'd like to be perceived. Like, if a woman walks into a bar and shoots a double shot of tequila... That just reads differently than if she asks for a glass of rosé or a Coors Light Tallboy. Champagne is for celebrating. Long Island iced teas are for utility. Some Irish whiskeys are shunned by Catholics and some shunned by Protestants. Smoking a Virginia Slim isn't the same thing as smoking a Marlboro Red or a Cuban cigar. And our appetite for intoxicants is intense. Listener... I don't relish relaying this part of the story, but that slurry of Katie's dad's booze, it curdled, like maybe a product of mixing red wine and dairy. And it had to be strained through a sock before drinking. That is so gross. That is so embarrassing. But I remember that teenage drive to feel different, that novelty-seeking, thrill-hungry urge to change the settings in my head. Intoxicants might not help us hunt or escape being hunted, but the desire for them is deeply human. I don't usually do that and like say the name of the show as a styled thing, but it's like just this one time. I'm just asking for a pass this one time. Whatever is in your cup, tea, coffee, kava, or water from the tap, I am lifting a glass in your general direction in this recording studio. Have fun, be careful, and I'll see you next question. Deeply Human is a BBC World Service and American Public Media co-production with iHeartMedia. And it's hosted by me, Dessa. Find me online at Dessa on Instagram and Dessa Darling on Twitter. In Western convention, monogamy is baked into the mainstream concept of love and romance. You meet, you catch feelings, you share a plate of pasta and discover you're eating the same noodle, you commit, and you stop seeing other people. Next time on Deeply Human, we're asking, why are you supposed to love only one person at a time? 